Welcome to the Physician's Financial Checkup Podcast, where we discuss the financial challenges and opportunities facing medical professionals. In this podcast, we'll discuss a variety of financial topics that are important to physicians, such as retirement planning, investing, and estate planning. We'll also interview experts in the financial services industry to get their insights on these topics. If you're a physician or a spouse of a physician, I encourage you to listen to this podcast. We will provide you with the information you need to make sound financial decisions and achieve your financial goals. Here's your host, Brent Bowden, a financial coach and certified financial planning advisor with over 15 years of experience helping medical professionals achieve their financial goals. To learn more about Brent Bowden and his services, visit brentbowden.com. Welcome to the Physician's Financial Checkup Podcast. I'm your host, Brent Bowden, and today we have a special guest who's not only a seasoned real estate expert, but also a dynamic entrepreneur with a passion for helping others achieve financial success. The founder and CEO of the DeRosa Group, Matt Faircloth. Matt is not your ordinary real estate guru. He's a thought leader who's been in the game for years and successfully navigated the ever-changing landscape of real estate investments. His insights, strategies, and proven track record have made him a sought-after expert in the field. In this episode, we'll delve into Matt's journey, his experience in real estate, and the invaluable knowledge he's gained along the way. We'll explore his unique perspective on building wealth through real estate investments and how medical professionals can apply these strategies to secure their financial future. So without further ado, let's delve into the world of real estate and financial wisdom with our guest, Matt Faircloth. Hey, Matt, how are you doing? I'm fantastic, Brent. How are you today? It's a great day. Love it. Every day is a great day, right? Absolutely. Every day above ground, every day doing what I love, you know, every day helping people hit their financial goals, you know, check, 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 check. <laughs> Sounds perfect. Yeah. Well, as we uh, get started here, tell me, tell me a little bit about yourself, kind of how you got started, what the Jarosa Group is. Sure. Background. I, I mean, I got started as a lot of people in my industry did, uh, in my industry is uh, real estate operations, let's say. So real estate investment as a profession, not real estate investment as a uh, portfolio addition, uh, real estate investment as the operation side of real estate investing. So uh, I got started in that by reading Rich Dad Poor Dad uh, many years ago. Um, as I mean, and you know, and that's so like, you know, cliche, whatever, in some ways, because every, almost everybody says that because that book's changed so many lives, right? So I uh, read Rich Dad Poor Dad in 2003, of all things, uh, quit my day job soon after that. Uh, to start my real estate operations company. Uh, got, I became an active landlord in Trenton, New Jersey. Uh, did a lot of fix and flips. Uh, built up our portfolio. Um, and uh, just, you know, got through the downturn of 2008, 9, 10. You know, got through all that. Learned uh, the hard way uh, through fix and flips that didn't go well and whatnot. That holding residential real estate was where I wanted to build my wealth. And uh, and it was also the most recession resilient because I had stuff, I had properties rent that were like, that I owned in 2007, eight that made it through the, I mean, as long as the tenants kept paying their rent and they did, and if they didn't, I would find new tenants, right? Um, those properties eventually got their value back. Yes, they got clipped on value, but income and expenses stayed somewhat in line and you could at least cash flow or, or some months break even. And, and then uh, things would continue to rise. So that took us, that, that fast forwards me to like 2012, 13, 
where my wife was getting connected to a friend of hers from grad school. And uh, she was telling about what she was doing as a consultant and what I was doing as a real estate operator. And uh, this friend of hers from grad school says the magic words, which are uh, real estate. Man, that sounds so interesting. I wish I could do that too, but I just don't have the time, right? And she said, you know, the magic words on the other side, which is any, any good wife should say, you should talk to my husband, right? And, and then so she introduced me and this person, and she pretty much helped me close the deal. I mean, you know, my, my wife is absolutely the wind in my sails. And so she uh, set all that up for me and teed it up. And that person from her grad school was my very first passive investor. And he and I did a few deals together. And that was, he gave me 50K to go and renovate two houses in Trenton, New Jersey and turn into rentals. And I'm proud to say that was in 2012. And now I'm sitting in 2023 and my company has 56 million in real estate, in equity under management from others in about a $150 million multifamily portfolio consisting mostly of apartment buildings in four states, uh, one of which, and, and, and you're the great state of Kentucky where you're, where you are right there. So, uh, so that's how, that's our, my backstory in, 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 a, in, in two minutes flat. So that's a pretty seismic rise from 2004, uh, what, probably one or two residentials yeah. to 56 million today. That yeah. It didn't happen overnight. So no. kind of talk me through a few of those steps. I'm sure you had a ton of learning curve, especially that kind of first five years, which tends to be, uh, especially in the real estate market, quick, yeah. but also a big learning curve. It was one of the, it was like the most special five years ever because our, our first five years were trying to figure out what we want to do riding this wave up. We're like, man, this is easy. It's like shooting fish in a barrel. I'm refinancing these properties every five, every six months. Seriously, and we were. We were yeah. refinancing every six months. Right? It's a little easier you know? to do then, right? That's good. It's good. It's what the cool kids were doing, right? Why not? You know? Um, so we were refinancing up and up and up and taking the, that money and buying more rentals and stuff like that. We bought one rental, Brent. It's tangential, but it's just a sign of the times from back then. We bought a four family, okay? Didn't live in it. Bought it, no money down, on a first position mortgage at eighty percent loan to value, and then a twenty percent second mortgage because there really was a thing back then called a second mortgage. Yep. Can't get that anymore on a rental property anyway. You got a second mortgage on the property, and the first mortgage rent was this thing called a negative amortization mortgage, which is just absolutely wow. a weapon That's of mass crazy. destruction. Um, and it's a uh, meaning like if your interest only payment would have been a thousand dollars a month, right? The negative amortization mortgage would have worked like this. Well, you could only pay $600 a month. And that other 400 bucks you would owe towards interest would go towards the back of the mortgage. So if you owed 200000 after the first month, you owe 200000 and $400. And then 200000 and $800. And then $200,000, $1,200, right? So it would, just, wow. it would increase the mortgage by you having a lower monthly payment. I, can you imagine? Because real estate always goes up, right? Markets yeah. always increase, don't they, Brent? Right? You know, over time, um, right? Yeah. Oddly enough, weirdly enough, you can't get that kind of mortgage anymore. <laughs> there was a lot um, of fun products back then, but we learned a lot then, um, and uh, we built a lot of it up on our own money and uh, our own portfolio and immediate family, like you know, my immediate, my parents and my wife's parents threw some money in to join us as well. Um, but we kind of hit a glass ceiling until we started uh, taking on equity from others uh, in 2012-13. And we started out on small onesie twosie deals. And then we uh, earned, got our legs underneath us and stretched up and bought a 10 unit with a couple of investors. Then we stretched up and bought an 18 unit. Then we stretched up and bought a 49 unit and started buying uh, you know, small to mid-sized multifamily. 
right? Uh, and there were lessons along the way. And then before you knew it, we were buying properties in the three-digit range. You know, our first one there was 198 unit in Fayetteville, North Carolina. Wow. So yeah. when did you go from, you know, kind of doing these smaller ones as you're building up? Are you using your own equity or was it a combination of some of your own equity for properties as well as investors? You know, yeah, what it was that some of our equity, but... Like? Well, it was some of our equity, but at the end of the day, like, for example, the 49 unit, right? We bought that in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, or as they say in Lancaster, they say Lancaster, kind of like one syllable. You got to let it all roll out. Just let it just fall out of your mouth, right? Um, so in, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, we bought a 49 unit and it was a million dollar equity stack. It was a $3.2 million purchase um, and a $1 million equity stack. Uh, we had some money to put into the deal, but we ended up not having to put any money in because we had investors that lined up uh, to get in and we put the sweat in, right? And it is okay for an operator to not put any money into the deal because they're likely personally guaranteeing the mortgage or at least sponsoring the mortgage and putting their reputation on the line. They're likely also putting in all the sweat equity that it takes to make the deal work. And that particular deal, the investors got 70% ownership of the property, by far the majority stake. And we got 30% ownership for our sweat. So it's a, it's a good win-win arrangement in, in, that, in, in that way. Uh, we have since personally written checks to buy investors out of that deal. So I do have my own skin in over time um, in that. But, that's, uh, but the, there, it's not always the case that an operator like us puts direct cash into the deal. We do. And, we, and when we can, we do. And, um, and that, but also there are times where we put a lot more than just cash in. We put, you know, uh, you know, sweat and, and brand and reputation and our, uh, you know, collateral such as personal guarantees on mortgages and that kind of stuff. And a lot of your all's group helps with the operations of, of running those units. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. We used to uh, self-manage. We we, okay. uh, we ran 115 units out of Trenton, New Jersey with our own property management company. Um, we have since expanded into uh, using third-party PMs, uh, just hiring PM companies, but that's just all they do. Like they, they, run real, they run the real estate portfolio uh, for us. And that, that became more logical to do as we bought larger assets, like a duplex triplex. You know, something like that, like a triplex, three family, that you're, a three flat, as they say in Chicago or something like that, like a three unit property that you own. Um, that is not going to have an, an in-house manager. It's going to have a property manager that's maybe got an office across town, something like right. that. But as we bought, uh, the, the numbers typically are on 80 units, 80 units, single site. Uh, like my 49 unit doesn't have management on site, but my 198 unit, we've already sold that one, did have management on site, right? Um, and so... When you get above a certain level, there is on-site staff, on-site maintenance techs, on-site leasing agents, on-site managers, right? Bus a business team that runs that property and the property produces enough revenue they can afford to pay that payroll. Uh, that becomes a way, a way more complex operation and it makes sense to hire a company that like that's what they do. And so they, they, you would, in hiring a company like that, you get a regional manager that is in charge of that site team. and your property pays that payroll, right? Just as like a doctor's office would have on-site staff, right? Um, there is on-site staff at these, uh, at these apartment buildings that have roles and tasks and their primary function in life. They get a full paycheck uh, and they feed their family off of that paycheck for running your real estate asset. And that's what I love about bigger properties is because you can really establish a level of culture 
establish a level of like a mission and purpose and what we're, why we're doing this and all this other kind of stuff where it's hard to do with a scattered site team. So that's why I really love uh, mid to large size multifamily properties. So kind of how would somebody start investing uh, in, you know, the way that you did it obviously was building a few properties at a time and kind of keep taking the equity and the cash and, and then hopefully getting rolling investors it up to do and that. rolling it over and over. Yeah. Yeah. It was a, it was a long haul, but let's say, you know, I'm a busy professional and I, I would like to have some of that, but I don't have the time, the energy yeah. or the money. Um, you know, where do I start and, and what's that look like? Sure. Well, there's, there's a whole other side of the equation, right? So I wrote a book for bigger pockets. I'm just going to like self-promote a little bit here and hold it up. Uh, it's called Raising Private Capital. Uh, there's the new version of it. Um, sold lots of copies uh, and, and, and that. And that's, that's a book that I authored and was published by BP, right? In that book, I talk about two different pieces that are necessary on both sides of the real estate investing equation. And that is the deal provider. That's me, right? I provide the deal, the sweat, the, uh, the, the know-how, the market knowledge, the relationships, the Rolodex, the, blah, 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 the time, of course, right? Um, I provide all those things. I bring all that to the table uh, and I get compensated uh, for doing all those things. And sometimes I also provide cash into the deal and that makes me the other side of it, which is the cash provider. So this is the deal provider and the cash provider. The cash provider is the person that invests in the deal and they're not, they're likely not putting in very much time at all, likely zero time into the deal in exchange for the other person's time. One person is investing using OPM, other people's money. The other person, which is arguably leveraging a lot further because they can scale a lot quicker, is, is investing on other people's time. Right, and that is the passive investor. That is the person that is investing for cash flow. Uh, that is investing in in operations. That's a well-oiled machine that's operated by somebody else. Right, and that is a passive investor. And we built our business. The fifty-six million that we have under management in equity is other people's money that they entrusted to us to, you know, invest for them in in multifamily operations that we own and control on their behalf. And part of doing that. Uh, you know, if, if I've got clients who have IRA money, yep. can they utilize some of that to invest in real estate market? They can, they can. And I, I've, uh, I, I have, uh, money at work in, in those kind of, in, in personally in vehicles like this, IRA money is good in this sense, right? When you look at an IRA, you've got to look at what it is, right? It's a tax vehicle. It is a tax shelter. Um, that, that it's, you know, you can, you can grow it and you're def you're kicking the can down the road, so to speak and paying uh, taxes when you withdraw the IRA, right? What's good about that is you could buy into a multifamily project or something that's selling, let's just say for fun, for just round numbers at $10 million. And you own a small piece of that, of that puzzle, which is what's great about multifamily investments. An investor doesn't need to write the entire check to invest in the deal. They could just buy a small bite-sized chunk, 50K, 100K with their retirement account of that multifamily project. Let's say the operator does a great job and buys it as we did. The deal that I mentioned in Fayetteville, North Carolina, we paid $6.7 million for when we bought it, and we sold it for $16.7 million okay, um, through after operations. So what's great about that is I had one of our investors put a half million dollars into that deal. We were able to 3X his money through you know, uh, an increased value, through operation, operational efficiencies, through getting occupancy up, through increasing rents through decreasing expenses, through running a business, running that property like it was a business, right? So we had a phenomenal exit. And what's great, uh, Brent, is they put that half million into that deal 
and they walked out with 1.5 million and what's great is because it was in their IRA, zero of that was taxable, right? Um, had they put in cash, they would have gotten other benefits such as depreciation exposure because I can write off a lot of the property uh, through depreciation. I can tell the IRS the property depreciated. But what's great about depreciation, Brandon, is you don't have to write a check to the depreciation company. It's a paper loss that you take. Uh, so you can make money while telling the IRS legally that you made a lot less than that because of depreciation loss. But then you have to recapture those things. Depreciation doesn't matter when you're claiming it in an IRA because it's its own little tax vehicle. So that's what I love about IRA investments in real estate uh, and syndications. We also have another vehicle that we do called the DeRosa Income Fund. My favorite thing to do with retirement accounts is to lend them out. Right to let to do private money loans. Right, it's the best. It's the best vehicle. Let me tell you why. If if someone with an IRA lent money into put money into a private loan, let's just say they lent it to me or to their next door neighbor down the street. Right, if they give that person a hundred thousand dollars, and just again for round numbers, they invest in that and they negotiate a ten percent interest rate. Next door neighbor has the money for exactly one year. Okay, here's your ten percent. That's uh, that's ten grand. Here's your hundred grand back. So now now the IRA holder has one hundred and ten thousand dollars. So what's great is none of that money's taxable. Had that money been you know written in cash, that ten grand would have been taxable, just as interest is. Interest on a private loan would be on your tax return, but because it's in this beautiful thing called an IRA, it is tax deferred. Now the operator, now the the lender can now go back to that operator and say, hey, phenomenal deal. Love that. I loved working with you on that one. How about I give you this $110,000 for your next deal, right? They can lend it out at 10%. The money comes back and now they make, now they've got 122K. And before you know it, they've got this cash cycle going out. They lend, they can re-lend the money they're making in interest back into the deal and compound those returns all tax deferred, right? That's very hard to do in a syndication. Not that syndications are not good things. Syndications can grow exponentially as well. But what's great about private loans is number one, they're typically short term. When somebody's paying you 10% interest rent, they want to give you that money back as soon as they can, right? Yeah. They don't want to pay 10% for any longer than they have to. So they want to get that money back to you. And so before you know it, you're putting 100 grand into a deal, into a, into a loan, borrower gives you back 105. Then you give them 105, they give you back 112. And they give you that, then you give them 112 and you give, you give them back 120. And just you're, before you know it, you've doubled up very quickly. Um, all tax deferred. And so that's why I love for IRAs, uh, private loans so much that we started this fund that we've got millions of dollars active in right now. We, including my own money's in it too, we do private loans with, uh, with IRA funds primarily. Uh, and we just recycle the cash over and over and over again. It's a phenomenal vehicle and people are exponentially growing their wealth with it. As a physician, you are dedicated to helping your patients. So who's helping you with your own financial health? I'm Brent Bowden, a certified financial planner and author of a new book, The Physician's Financial Checkup. In my book, I'll show you how to take control of your finances, set realistic goals, create a budget that works for you, invest in your future, protect your assets, and much more. So if you're ready to achieve financial freedom, then The Physician's Financial Checkup is the book for you. You can order it now on Amazon Kindle, paperback, and audiobook coming soon. Check the link below in the description to get your copy today of the Physician's Financial Checkup, financial advice and education for medical professionals. Yeah, it's a really cool uh, concept, especially using IRA for that. You know, we're always looking for tax advantage ways to be able to, to help our clients. Um, 
you know, 1031 exchange being another one in the real estate market that mm -hmm. has a lot of fantastic benefits to be able to continually grow that. Do you all work with clients who are selling a property, they're looking to identify and, and move over 1031 money? You can, and, but the, here's the problem, right? Um, it, let's say someone's selling a duplex and they make you know, 75,000 on selling their duplex, right? Well, listen, first of all, God bless. That's great. It's, 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 sometimes it's hard to make money as so you make that kind of money selling real estate. That's awesome. The problem is if I'm raising capital for a 200 unit that I'm buying uh, in Lexington, Kentucky, so to, like for say, right? Let's say I got to raise $10 million for that purchase. The 75,000 that somebody wants to roll in to my deal with the 1031 exchange is possible to do, but the paperwork is probably as tall as I am because it, it goes in through a vehicle called a tenant in common. And so a lot of times it's typically not worth the paperwork because that 1031, they actually need to own an actual piece of the dirt, a piece of the sticks and bricks. They can't own a piece of a syndication, which buy, when you buy into a syndication of a multifamily apartment building, what you're really doing is buying shares of a company. Shares of it. Yeah. yeah. That company owns the real estate, but you're buying shares, in essence, buying shares of stock, right? So what we've helped people do is, uh, I've had multiple people sell their real estate and have a taxable gain. And then they just, you know, pay the piper. Like they, they, they ended up like taking that, money, taking that gain on their tax return. And they invest in, in the same taxable year, they invest that money into our, into our deal. And because we do this awesome thing called a cost segregation study, We've been able to wash out a lot of their taxable gain by giving them an enormous negative uh, loss in the first year uh, through cost segregation studies. So I mean, I've been able to wash out a lot of people's gains to the point where they didn't need to do a 1031, right? Um, but we've also talked to people about 1031s on selling larger assets uh, and do our deals. But it's just, it's got to be a win-win for the, for the amount of paperwork they have to do and the amount of agita they have to have. Um, yeah, and, and us too in, in uh, bringing in a 1031. We're open to it. We just haven't done it yet because it's got to be a, it's got to be significant. Yeah. I think you make a good point too. You know, right now, historically, some of the lower tax rates we've ever seen yep. uh, with probably the on the horizon potential increases. So, you know, taking some of those capital gains and go ahead and pay for it. Not always the worst thing. Yeah. Uh, you and, and you can wash a lot of them out through, through cost seg study. You know, um, and, and that, which, you know, it, it, like taxes are all, like some people say it's like defer, 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 die, right? Um, and, and that, which, so like if you can keep deferring down through 1031 exchanges or through investing in things that have uh, big negative losses that can wash out your gains, at the end of the day, that's maybe a better way to do it and just kind of kicking the can and enjoying as much of the proceeds as you can and cash flow that your investments are generating, but taking the principal gain that you're creating and pushing it down. Um, to the point where a your taxable the tax bracket you're in is much less than being willing to pay the man then, um, or just deferring it all the way out to your to your descendants, you know. Yep. So a lot of our uh, listeners are going to be in that uh, either residency medical time period, kind of twenty five to thirty, all the way through kind of pre retirement, and looking for outside income sources. How do they get involved with you? What's that look like? And kind of what's the the things they should know, both pros and cons of real estate investing. Yeah. There's a lot. Well, you know what, Brent? There's a lot of operators out there. I'm, I'm certainly not the only one, but so they can research operators. But I, I would just caution anyone for investing that you've got that the deal, Matt, like there's, here's the hierarchy of, of when you're looking at, at a real estate opportunity to invest in, if you're going to be passive, 
If you're going to be operating yourself, I get it. Um, so that's like you're really looking at yourself in the mirror to make sure you got time to be operations. But if you don't have time to be operations, the hierarchy of things you want to vet are this, right? Number one, the operator, not the deal. Like, well, wait, wait, I want to look at the deal and see what the cash on cash return is going to be and see if the IRR is going to be or whatever. No, the deal matters the least. That there's two things that matters that matter way before than that, right? Number one, the operator, make sure that they have integrity, make sure that hopefully they've been through a few market cycles, make sure that they haven't just ridden this phenomenal wave that real estate's had over the last seven or eight years. And the market didn't just make them look really smart, you know, because that's a lot of this, this up market we've had has made a lot of people look like geniuses, right? And so, but, and maybe they are, but also make sure they've seen the other side of a market. Because as you know, uh, markets go both ways, right? Yep. Um, so that's number one. So vet the operator, make sure that they've got a deep bench of a team that can help them with deals and everything like that, that they, that they can make sure that they ensure your success. And that above all else, a la Warren Buffett, they're not going to lose your principal. They're going to at least get you some return on your money, maybe meet the returns that they say they're going to, but beyond all else, that they've got a deep enough bench that they're not going to lose principal. The second thing that matters is the market. Right, a wise man told me a while ago, you will never change a market. You can only hope to participate in it. So if if this operator is preaching to you that you need to be getting into Detroit, Michigan, and you don't believe that Detroit has the fundamentals that that it should have for you to invest there, then maybe that's not the right deal. I don't care what the cash on cash return is. I don't care what the IRR is. Right? If Detroit is not the market that makes sense to you, given your analysis of the fundamentals of where that market is, then you shouldn't do it because that operator can only do so good of a job. Uh, there needs to be, you know, jobs coming into that market. There needs to be growth. There needs to be changes coming in. So markets that are doing well, like Charlotte, Atlanta, um, Lexington, Kentucky, uh, markets like that, like when we're actually very active in Winston Salem, North Carolina, that's really taking off. Not a lot of people are talking about it, but it's really blowing up there. It's great. Um, so research the market yourself, then. But below that, the deal, and we we encourage our investors to do the same. Uh, we've got a great track record. Uh, people can hear more about us on our website at DeRosaGroup.com if they want to reach out to us about passive investments. We do have, including the income fund and the um, and, and uh, syndications. But beyond all else, I believe that anybody looking to invest should go through that hierarchy. And one last thing, Bigger Pockets published a book written by a good friend of mine named Brian Burke called The Hands Off Investor. That book is dedicated to teaching passive investors that, that have day jobs that they love uh, on how to build their wealth through alternatives uh, such as real estate investing and whatnot. It's called The Hands-Off Investor, written by Brian Burke. And it is written for you. If you're a passive investor looking to build your wealth, that book is, what, that book is a great book for you to check out. Awesome. Well, let's shift a little bit uh, kind of from the real estate. I know you work with your wife. Yes. and yeah, a lot of people have kind of some hesitation with doing that. Uh, so how for has better that for worse, right? Yeah, better and worse, <laughs> right? Uh, so how has that worked? How do you all find kind of that work-life balance? Uh, you know, not only while you have to work, but also outside yeah. of it. Well, we just crossed over our 18-year anniversary, Brent. So, uh, so we were doing something right, but in the beginning, we did a lot wrong. You know, uh, to be honest, um, and 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 that. So I think that that. The lessons we've learned over the years are that the marriage is first, right? Uh, the business is second, the marriage is first. Um, and that we need to put the marriage first with regards to uh, time investments in each other, time investments in our relationship, 
um, and, and that. And then we also, beyond it, need to leverage each other's strengths. My wife and I, when we first started working together, did not do a very good job leveraging what I was great at and what she was great at. You know, um, and we tried to do things that just were necessary to get done. Like my wife, with her master's in social work um, and phenomenal people skills, was like trying to keep our books, right? Um, and that was not a good thing because at the beginning, I was like, why, why didn't the mortgage get paid on that property? Oh, I forgot. I didn't know how to do it in the software. I was going to be meaning to ask you, but I forgot. So we, we had to take her off of that because it wasn't her core strength. She's not a finance person. She's a people person. Right. So uh, we had to figure out the hard way who was good at what. And, and once we got that down, we expanded in by going a lot deeper on, on personal skills and personal, um, I guess, like, you know, like God given talents, let's say, uh, yeah. and, and pushing further into each of those things for each one of us. That's great. Yeah. I talk a lot about kind of behavioral values yes. uh, from a finance perspective, and it's very similar you know, I think in any relationship you're working with is, is knowing what those are for other people can help you find the best uh, results in, in their outcome as well. So it sounds like you all have done a lot of soul searching to get there. Quite a bit. <laughs> well, and I know you've got uh, two young kids. I always love talking a little bit about how are you teaching your kids about money? Uh, you know, what are some of your tips and tricks that you've picked up in working with them to learn more about their investing and finances? Yeah. Well, I, you know, it, it's a difficult road, um, and I, but, but little ones are curious, right? They ask things like, what is your job, daddy or mommy, right? And so instead of just blowing it off and saying, like, well, I'm a doctor or I'm a, I'm a financial planner or I, you know, I work in real estate, I try and te- I've, I've worked very hard at my kids' very early youth to teach them. And for, like, my nine-year-old, my nine-year-old boy, in the beginning, it was just daddy does construction. And then it turned into daddy does construction to give people houses. And then it turned into daddy, daddy does construction to, uh, so that people can pay him a monthly basis or for where they live. And daddy helps people have really safe, secure places to live. And that's evolved to my son gets it. He knows we have investors. He knows that we run operations. Uh, he knows we take ugly things and make them better again, that we transform lives through real estate. That's the mantra of my company. Um, and, and that, so I think that it, it it's bite-sized chunks. And, uh, so I think that an easy way to explain things to kids is what we do for a living is to start there. Right. Then we give our kids an allowance. We do give them money and we don't allow them to just take it and spend it on stuff. We do spend, we do let them spend, but we try and teach them at an early age that you, that money is a vehicle. It's not just for buying yourself Legos. You can do that. Um, but you also can do other things with money. And so I explained to my son the things we can do with money. Well, what can you do with it? Well, you can spend it, sure. But you can also give it away to somebody else. You could donate it. So we make sure that he donates, uh, you know, gives his money when he gets some money that he has to give part of it away um, as, a, as a charitable donation to our church or to something, some, you know, some, somewhere, someone, right? Um, then he also needs to save it, right? Because as, as you know, being, being in the financial industry, many Americans have lost that saving muscle many, many years ago because it was never taught to them, right? So my son, I, I, don't, I actually don't know if it's in the human nature to save. Um, it, I think it's like a learned skill, right? So we've taught our son how to save money. And so he's got his save thing. And it's like, okay, well, this is where you save up for bigger purchases that you want or you save up for when you might need money in the future. You just want to have money and save. You don't want to have no money all the time. And so my kids, 
to have a little bit of say, you know, for a nine-year-old and six-year-old, they might have like 50 bucks, whatever. And of course we have investment accounts for them that they don't even know about because I don't want to tell them what's in there, you know, but, but with regards to their cash, they've got little piggy banks and that's their savings account, right? Then I teach our son about making investments, right? Um, and, and that could be like an investment my son made was he had like 20 bucks saved up and I said, okay, let's do an investment. Let's invest in something that's going to make you more money. So we took his 20 bucks and I took him to the store and I got him to buy some powdered lemonade and some little cups. And my son did a lemonade stand in front of our house. And he took that 20 bucks and turned it into $70, right? And so we got to have a great conversation about like, okay, here's an investing, here's this, here's that. He ended up, uh, Brent, having a few of his buddies as his employees. Uh, and then he paid them a certain, you know, like a commission, like he was selling lemonade for three bucks, gave each one a dollar for every glass that they sold for him and stuff like that. And before you knew it, my son, the big thinker wants to open up lemonade stands in every corner of our little neighborhood, <laughs> you know, like have one, a block down the, a block down at the next stop sign. I'm like, we might saturate the market, buddy, but you know, but, uh, it's thing, it's little baby steps like that in language that they can understand. Um, that you teach them. My next step for my son it has not happened yet, but he's learning math in school. And so my next step for him is to have him on a little whiteboard, go through a profit and loss statement with me. You know, how much money did we make? Like in a like underwrite a rental property, super basic single family home rental property then deduct out how much cash flow do we want to make? You know, um, he doesn't get percents yet. So it's hard to determine percent cash on cash, but right. he certainly gets, you know, dollars coming to him every month and, and stuff like that. So if he wants to buy a vending machine. He's brought that up multiple times, you know? That's um, awesome. so th these are the results of teaching them about cash flow investments on a regular basis. Yeah. I love hearing the different stories. You know, everybody has a little bit of a different technique. I think you gotta start somewhere, right? Yeah. Uh, it's just having that conversation with your kids is a, is a great place to start. Well, Matt, it, it has been a pleasure talking with you. Tell us where we can find more about you and your book. Sure. Uh, well, they can even get a copy of it too on the website. Uh, you can get a you can get a copy of the book uh, at Bigger Pockets by biggerpockets.com forward slash RPC. That's the initials of the book, Raising Private Capital. And they can also, I believe, get a copy of it at our website, which is derosagroup.com, D-E-R-O-S-A, derosagroup.com. Uh, at that website, they can get copies of our book. If people are listening to the past, this podcast and want to be active operators like we are one day, we have phenomenal um, epic training programs uh, that people can take part in to participate to become you know active operators like we are. And if people want to uh, let us do the work uh, while they or while they make great returns, uh, they can also at derosagroup.com learn more about the passive investment options we have. And can they schedule a call with you there as well mm -hmm. or your team? Right there on the website. Yeah, awesome. it's all right there. Derosagroup.com. Well, Matt, it has certainly been a pleasure talking to you, learning a little bit more about your business as well as uh, working with your family. Thanks. Great conversation today, Brent. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Matt. Thank you for listening to the Physician Financial Checkup Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on your favorite platform and leave a review. You can also find more information on brentboden.com. 
The information contained in this podcast is for educational purposes only and should not be construed as financial advice. The opinions expressed are solely those of the host and guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of any other individual or organization. You should carefully consider your investment objectives, risk tolerance, and time horizon before making any investment decisions. If you are seeking financial advice, you should consult with a qualified financial advisor who can assess your individual circumstances and needs.